Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stefan Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. Samantha, have you ever gone surfing? No. Have you ever wanted to go surfing? Of course, but I feel that my lack of coordination mm-hmm. could get me killed. Also, all the sharks. <laughs> also, all the sharks. I I have gone surfing, and let me tell you, the thing I was not anticipating, because I have bad balance, I'm clumsy, we've gone over this. You have to have a lot of upper arm strength. Because you have yeah. to, you like on a, you're in a flat position and you have to kind of push yourself up into a standing position while on this board. And that's where I fell down, literally fell off, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I did manage it once or twice, like little baby waves. And it was really fun, but it was a lot more difficult than it looked. And this is coming from someone who really had just seen Mary-Kate and Ashley do it in one of their, like, specials. And it they made it look really easy. Uh, but it is not easy. I forget often how much you loved Mary-Kate and Ashley. Oh. And then when you remind me that that joy of being, like, reminded <laughs> about how much you loved them and how much they've influenced you. Oh. It's a delight. <laughs> I'm glad to hear because I could really crank up the Mary-Kate and Ashley references. <laughs> Yeah, so as this comes out, the Olympics, the 2021 Olympics in Tokyo are underway or soon to be underway. Obviously, a lot is happening and there's a lot of discussion around that. So it could have changed. But we did want to bring this up because this Olympics marks the first time that there will be a surfing event at the Olympics after it was approved in 2018. And women will be competing in it. uh, And there's a lot of exciting stuff about that. Of course, there are also a lot of conversations about whitewashing of indigenous Hawaiian history. And and those are important conversations to have. But this is something 100 years in the making of trying to get this an Olympic sport. And so... I'm excited to see how it goes and to see what these women pull off at at the Olympics. But in the meantime, here is a classic episode about women and surfing. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, I prepared so thoroughly for this episode on women and surfing that I, I went to Hawaii. <laughs> I went, I went to the, the homeland of surfing. Yeah. Yeah. You, t- I, you know, I've, I've always admired your commitment to yeah. our podcast. <laughs> okay. Granted it, it wasn't for stuff I've never told you, but I did just get back from Hawaii and mm-hmm. I was so excited to see that surfing was next up yes. on our podcast calendar because I was like, Oh, I was just there. And by the way, listeners in Hawaii, because I know you're out there and we're going to read a letter from one of you uh, at the end of the episode. I am in love with your state. Aww. Where did you marry it? Well, I can't, (laughs) unfortunately. Um, And then which island would I pick? You know, if you married Hawaii, would you be marrying all of the islands or would you have to, you know, just marry Maui? Or Maui, 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 Maui me. <laughs> uh, um, anyway, yeah, I've, uh, 
had never been to Hawaii before, and it just blew my mind constantly. As did seeing people surf. How about that transition, Caroline? <laughs> um, when uh, my husband and I were on the Big Island, we ended up at a park renowned for its surfing. And I had just never seen waves like that. And then to see people <laughs> intentionally running out into them uh, was just kind of mind-blowing, Part- partly because I'm a horrible swimmer. <laughs> Oh, my God. I Surfing terrifies me. And I say that as someone who's never done it. But I look at pictures of people and I'm like, how 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 are you staying on the board? Yeah. Like I slip on like concrete in shoes. So how how could I stay on a surfboard? Also, I will now forever and always have in my head. And I know this is ridiculous, but still. The sight and sound of Kate Bosworth's character in Blue Crush cracking her head on the rock underwater. God. And I just like can't even I'll be I'll be in the in the calm waters off of the coast of Georgia, like bobbing around <laughs> in the salt water, and I think of that and I'm like, I better paddle back in. <laughs> yeah, getting seeing that now like firsthand. I mean, I'd seen surfing before, but I feel like surfing in, you know, the east coast of the united states like doesn't really count um but seeing it for real now it's it's a bucket list thing to to just stand on a surfboard if i can do that i'll be happy my sister can surf oh yeah which is pretty cool you know, not to brag you know what we should have done because for our lady skateboarding episode we recorded audio of of both of us failing at being on a skateboard I could I could get on a surfboard and and recreate that at a more extreme level. Let's go to the beach. Extreme sminty. Extreme. Yeah, it's just me screaming, <laughs> screaming and then gurgling because I'm underwater. <laughs> well, before um, you hypothetically drown. Totally. OK, let's drag you back to the beach. Cool. And let's talk about women and surfing and the history of surfing, because there's some fascinating stuff, also some terrible stuff. It's like mm. basically a, a yet another lesson in white people being kind of awful. Um, but for a quick stat, just to kind of keep in mind uh, where we're at with women surfing today, from the statistics I could find um, in the 1990s, women made up just 5% of surfers. My sister surfing, uh, it's a statistically pretty rare thing. But now it's over 20%. So there are more women surfing than ever before in in this era. Um, although if we go back to the Polynesians um, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, it would be like it's 50-50 pretty yeah, much. It wasn't. It wasn't a thing. Women were surfing all the time. Yeah. So... Surfing began uh, with the Polynesians as early as 2000 B.C., according to surf historian Ben Finney. Um, and that was cited in The History of Surfing by Matt Warshaw. So basically, that means that surfing has existed in Hawaii ever since <laughs> Polynesians first settled in that gorgeous archipelago. Oh, yes, it is so gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. And by 1200... And that's AD. That's a long, a long time ago. Uh, surfing was totally a community wide pastime and passion 
in Hawaii. And a 19th century Hawaiian scholar said, all thought of work is at an end. The wife may go hungry and the children, but the head of the house does not care. All day there is nothing but surfing. Was this a 19th century white scholar? I think so. Um, and to say that all day there's nothing but surfing was a bit of an exaggeration unless it was during the, they had like a, a three month like festival every year because again, Hawaii is paradise. Um, but partially because of the, just the, the way that the crops would come in. Um, they were able to to take this time off, but they also took off time every day, like pretty much like every afternoon. They Your would just lunch be like, break. Yeah, I'm out of here. I'm going to go. I'm going to go surf. And even surfboards themselves in that time had sacred significances and served as status symbols because yeah. this was not just something that beach bums did. No, no, no. This was, as Jack London would famously write, the sport of kings. And queens. That's right, because both men and women were doing it. If you're living in paradise with all these rad waves, why would you not? Yeah. So ladies would surf alongside the dudes, and everybody was naked. Naked. They were up to something. Um, yeah, in mythology, we have the goddess Mamala, who's a terrific surfer, and she had to leave her beloved surfer husband, who became a shark god, in mourning. Yeah, he was like, Mamala, no, well, I'll become a shark god, <laughs> which also sounds really cool. Chomp, chomp. And then he, what, did he, like, chase her around as a shark and try to get her back by chomping her surfboard? No, she had to quit surfing and, and go marry some dude on the mainland. This is the worst. I know. Now I'm just thinking of the shark fruit snacks, mm. uh, which is weird because I have already had lunch. Um, and then there was this other oral tradition that maintained that King Kamehameha and Queen Kaahumanu surfed side by side. Aww, that's sweet. Yeah. That- although I would just get so aff- like, give me some. I could just picture. I can picture myself right now screaming at my boyfriend to give me more space. You're gonna crash into me. I'm gonna get a traumatic head injury. Don't take my wave, bro. That would be secondary to all the other things I'd be screaming. Well, speaking of your boyfriend, Caroline, Ooh. if you and boyfriend dog were surfing the same wave, um, that would have meant that you two were flirting. So <laughs> apparently in old school Polynesian dating culture, if a guy and a girl ended up sort of surfing alongside each other, then it was kind of like going to third base and it was totally fine when they got back to the beach to then just kind of run off and let nature take its course. Use the bathroom. Oh, is that what that means? (laughs) No, I think that's when nature calls. Okay. Yeah. Nature takes its course. Well, maybe both. Who knows? They went off and frolicked with some birds and some bees. There you go. Yeah. Um, And, you know, in competitions that were held in Hawaii, women did hold their own against the dudes they often won i mean <laughs> it it just wasn't a thing yeah. you know, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a gendered pursuit there was no reason why men and women would not compete and one of the very first western records of this hawaiian surfing is from captain james Cook, the infamous James Cook, who royally screwed Hawaii, um, he recounted in his diaries seeing women surfing as eagerly as the men and also going out for the biggest waves. So not only were women surfing alongside the men 
and winning competitions. They were also as aggressive in their surfing as dudes were, which is interesting to note because you hear a lot today in um, the surfing culture about how women are less aggressive surfers and are more stylistic, whereas men, you know, tend to go for go for the big waves. Just like Patrick Swayze. <laughs> yes. And point break. Yeah. Um, and when it came to surfing segregation, it wasn't so much based on uh, gender. It wasn't like men and women were surfing separately like we've been hammering home. But more by class. So, for example, uh, there was a Waikiki surf break that was reserved solely for the queen's use. Yeah. I love that. She had her own little surfing area. And uh, there was one queen um, and probably more than one queen, but surfing the spirit of Hawaiian kings uh, just cited a, a queen, Emma which also does not sound like a Polynesian name. I'm very skeptical of of this fact, so it might be a factoid. Um, but apparently this queen had a special surf chant mm-hmm. because not only would you sometimes have priests come out and like shake up the waves kind of, they would actually like take their sticks and like agitate the water to try to bring sacred sticks, <laughs> their sacred sticks, their, uh, their pool noodles <laughs> um, to summon the waves. But you would also have groups of singers who would essentially uh, they were like your hype team. Like a pep rally. Yes. Who would, you know, sing these songs just for you when you would uh, if you if you were royalty, of course. Uh, when you would go out surfing, which also reminds me of uh, like during baseball games when uh, the players will come out to bat and they'll have like their own song. Yeah, you know. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah, I wonder if Queen Emma, if that was just an anglicized, like if if Cook's minions just called her that because they couldn't pronounce Hawaiian names. Probably. And they were like, oh, we're not sure about these native names. We're going to give you a white name. Um, yeah. Uh, actually, speaking of. Captain Cook, when uh, we were driving through the Kona Coast, uh, we passed the site where um, James Cook was murdered by a mob. And I was like, hmm, there you go, James Cook. (laughs) Well, did you pass the point where he landed in Hawaii in 1789? Probably. I mean, we kind of drove around like everywhere that you could drive. But uh, it was more memorable and, and noted on the National Geographic <laughs> map that I was looking at. Like, here's, it just had a skull and crossbones. Yes, here's the point where he died. But still so much stuff was named after him. Yeah. And so, so many Christian churches in that particular area of the Big Island. So, you know, when Cook showed up in Hawaii, he brought his Western white guy fear of the sea respect and fear of the sea as a source of of death it could kill you it's it's fatal it's not somewhere that you jump into and and ride the waves for leisure so of course they interpreted the sight of these people these savages as they would call them going willingly out into the water as just bonkers Thank you. I could not think of the word. Because it was so bonkers. Yeah. I mean, they they couldn't fathom it. Um, and speaking of the, the nudity, of course, that scandalized the Calvinist missionaries who showed up in 1819 who were like, no, you must put on clothes. <laughs> 
And in fact, missionaries are usually the ones blamed for the initial demise of surfing in Hawaii. But in fact, as Matt Warshaw notes in The History of Surfing, that by 1893, when Queen Liliuokalana abdicates her throne, the demise of surfing was really more to blame on Captain Cook because he brought disease with him. I mean, so did the missionaries. He brought a jar of disease. And of course, Native Hawaiians didn't have the immune systems to combat these foreign diseases. So you have just the basic population uh, demise that happened. But then, too, there's an economic factor where you have a shift from a bartering economy to a cash-based economy that was dominated by sugarcane. Yeah, because they were at work all day. Yeah. They couldn't just drop things and go surfing like they wanted to, which was perfectly fine. They had, like, subsisted just fine like that for a long time. I know. And what's interesting, and we'll we'll hit on this a little bit in a minute, is that when you see surfing emerge in the quote-unquote modern era, especially, uh, you know, in California, people who adopted the surfing lifestyle went back to that idea of, like, I don't want to be working all day. I want to be able to go surf. And it was, like, so rebellious to to have a different type of masculinity in this case of, of saying no to the office culture and saying yes to being on the board all day. Being on the board, being on the board, not in the boardroom. That's right. I didn't even mean to do that. Well, in addition to the sport itself disappearing for a little while, you also have Christianity uprooting surfing related religious customs and also hula dancing and lays being banned. Essentially, they just wanted to erase native culture, which is, you know, same song, different verse. And on top of that, you have fewer people, fewer native people than ever before who even recalled and and would have practiced those things because those diseases that we mentioned, like syphilis, tuberculosis, the flu, etc., decimated the native population from around 400,000 to just 30,000. Yeah, that's insane. That's insane. These missionaries and Cook were the worst. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's colonialism. Colonialism yeah. really just—it's—it's it's the worst. I, I don't think there's any form of like gentle <laughs> colonialism. Yeah. No. Um. But in 1907, we start to see a slow start to surfing revival in Waikiki. But here we have it being segregated by gender. It was for dudes only. Which I would bet that that has to do with Christianity. And that whole like Judeo-Christian um, gender role division probably being fairly set in stone by that point. Yeah. Where it wouldn't have been as appropriate for women to be out there alongside the men. Yeah. So it's OK for dudes to pursue this pastime. But it starts to spread like word of this surfing thing starts to spread first with Jack London, who um, goes to Honolulu in uh, 1910 or 1911, he learns to surf and writes about it first for Women's Home Companion magazine. I, yeah, I love that. Um, but then an essay about it was published later in his book, Cruise of the Snark. That's actually, funnily enough, that's the name of, of my memoir. Cruise of the Snark? Yeah. Love it. But then off the page... 
Hawaiian Olympic medalist Duke Kahanamoku was essentially the surfing evangelist. He introduced surfing to Australia, New Zealand, and Southern California in the 1910s and 30s. He would actually, I mean, literally introducing it. He would like go there and lead demonstrations. And, I mean, he was already known for being a fantastic athlete, but he you know, popularize this surfing thing. This surfing thing that I have just an ingrained innate fear of. Um, Well, around this time, though, I mean, what are what are the women doing if if they're not allowed? They're watching. They're not allowed to surf. They're being beach babes or beach bunnies, as they were called. Yeah, there's this horrific quote where I literally like had to be like, you don't know anything. Jon Snow, you know nothing. Um, 1966 world champion Nat Young was quoted in Surfing Magazine as saying, Girls shouldn't surf. They make fools of themselves. And I literally, I'm not kidding you, out loud by myself to the computer screen said, You are so ignorant. <laughs> and that's why it's important to talk about stuff like this sidebar, because... If you lose the history of a thing, you don't realize that women have had just as much of a history and a place in this sport among so many others. And you don't get to decide that women shouldn't do it because they'll make fools of themselves. This was once an egalitarian pursuit for the people who invented it. Shouldn't we ask the people who invented it? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think Nat Young should have. Maybe if he's alive, maybe he'll listen to this podcast. Yeah. We'll set him straight. Shake the ignorance right out of him. Well, in this episode, too, very much uh, parallels our skateboarding two-parter because these subcultures uh, were developing alongside each other. I mean, skateboarding came out of uh, surfing culture. So even before skateboarding was really kicking up in the 1940s and 50s, you did have a few women making names for themselves on the waves. Um, and there were a group of them that formed, and this is in Southern California, um, the Haley Nalu Club to band together. So from the get-go, you kind of have women finding each other because there are so few of them and being like, okay, let's stick together. Mm-hmm. Let's have a club. Because you would also kind of have to stake out your part of the beach, guys in the same way that they could be hostile at skate parks or at whatever sweet skate spots. They found, you know, didn't necessarily want girls hanging around. That's right. But then you get the development uh, by designer Joe Quigg of this lighter balsa wood surfboard that women were using because the older traditional surfboards were really heavy. I mean, they were huge. They could weigh 100 pounds. And that was that was hard to carry no matter who you were. So the women started using them and then total eye roll. Of course, like their boyfriends started borrowing them or their guy friends or brothers or dads or whoever. And the guys were like, oh, this is uh, I mean, this is a stupid girl thing. But like it actually makes surfing a lot better. And uh, designer Quig even said the men were jealous. A lot of people don't want to admit that. But a lot of the big name Malibu guys did not like women out there looking that good. Oh, yeah. I mean, because you have people like Nat Young just being like, yeah, they make fools of themselves. Shut up, Nat Young. Uh, just, I have. You know what? You want to talk about hostility? Ooh, I've got a lot of hostility pent up that's being directed at Nat Young. But he's a stand in for all of the dudes who were hating on women at this time. Um, but we get this huge cultural moment in the 50s. 
with Gidget. And that's a ridiculous sentence. I admit it. It's a totally ridiculous sentence. But it's true. I had no idea what an influence Gidget had. So in case you are mixing up, <laughs> like I did originally in my brain, uh, Gidget with the flying nun, because both were played by Sally Field, I assure you that Gidget is a cute little California surfer girl, whereas the flying nun is the flying nun. Um, but it was originally a book in 1957 by Frederick Coner about his real life Malibu surfing daughter, Kathy, that gave way to Hollywood's first surfing film in 1959 starring Sandra D. Uh, we would get two more movies and then get the 1965 TV show Gidget starring Sally Field. And it had a huge influence on both girls and guys like not only, hey, girls, you can surf, but hey, people, this is a thing you can do. And it's really fun. It's a cool cultural moment. Yeah. And um, from what I can remember watching the Gidget movies as a kid, which I did. And no, I'm not 70. Um, I, I really enjoyed them. Uh, but there was always this conflict of like, Gidget, you <laughs> You're going out there and surfing with the boys. And she had a crush on a boy named Moondoggy. And he, of course, was kind of the um, like the native stand in um, who wasn't like those annoying white boys who didn't think that she didn't belong on the beach. You know, but she, it was very transgressive in her own way for for Gidget to be surfing. And she always surprised people with how well she could surf. Yeah, and there's a lot of writing out there about how Gidget supposedly presented this alternative masculinity and femininity, these other options for people, because, I mean, Gidget was sort of a rebel in hanging out with a boy who was so different from the rest and allowed her to be different as well. And these surfer guys, they were, like we said, they were saying no to the stuffy suits in the offices and the conformity of the Cold War era. And they were hitting the beach to, to go surfing. But you've got to keep in mind, though, at the same time, by the 60s and 70s, white dudes in particular were really starting to act as gatekeepers to this sport, this pastime. And so... In the 70s, you see more women banding together to start surfing, start groups to help each other enter the surfing realm. Um, but it's also helped along by a little thing called Title IX. Yeah, this was something highlighted by authors Peter Westwick and Peter Neuschel in The World in the Curl, an unconventional history of surfing. They attributed the rise of women surfing in that era to the 1972 passage of Title IX, which coincidentally was sponsored by Hawaii Senator Patsy Mink. Um, and for those of you who, who haven't listened to our episode on Title IX, um, it essentially enabled girls' athletics, women's athletics um, to happen. Yeah. Um, so because... Swimming is part of, you know, school athletics and you have more girls swimming competitively. Girls are in the water. So you have more girls just being naturally led to surfing. Yeah. But it is that sort of <laughs> in the midst of the second wave, I guess, of feminism, you do have a lot of pushback from dudes against 
women asserting their right to participate in these things. And it's because of that hostility that you see women starting groups for themselves. So in 1975, you get the formation of the Women's International Surfing Association. And in in the late 70s, you get the Women Professional Surfing Association. And these groups were basically directly formed in response to the hostility that women were facing who were just trying to surf. Yeah, I mean, because... While you have these super athletic women who were really focused on the sport, you also have this environment of sexism, not only of people not wanting them to surf, but also of just relegating women to be like sexual objects, tanning themselves on the beach and watching the guys. Mm -hmm. So you have this kind of sexified, if you will, image of if she's going to surf, well, she should at least like look sexy when she's going to do it. But then in the 90s, probably largely due to all of that grassroots organizing that those women were doing in the 70s, we start to see more of a girl focused surfer culture arising that came with independent clothing lines and surfboard lines, surfing schools and surf magazines, all focused on women But it seems like that period of time is so short before it's quickly commodified. Well, yeah, I mean, did you get all those catalogs at your house when you were growing up? I remember getting a Roxy catalog. Yeah, I I got all of those like Roxy Quicksilver things because I think that stuff was also sold a lot of it by like Delia's and things like that. Uh, It was definitely like super mall fashion. You could find it at Journeys, which still exists. Journeys. Whoa, flashback. Yeah, seriously. But. I just that is so burned into my brain that like cool girl Roxy fashion with the the short little board shorts. Um, you know, she's so tan. She's got bleached hair because she's been in the sun. Um, like that was such a big fashion moment as far as I can recall being someone growing up in the 90s. Well, and it's because there were four big surf brands, Quicksilver, Billabong, Rip Curl and O'Neal that saw girls getting more interested in surfing and saw an opportunity to make a lot of money. So they were like, oh, let's make a new line uh, just for girls. Let's start making stuff for girls. And so they essentially put a lot of the independent lines out of business. Well, they did. But at the same time, the incredible amount of focus that went into marketing that stuff to this new arena of consumers that then served to open the door to more girls and women like me getting a catalog at my house being like, oh, this is something to do. Like, this is something I can do. And here are the clothes and the equipment I need to do it. Um, so it was ushering more girls and women into surfing. Or at but, least dressing like a surfer. Right. But you still had that image that was being sold to you that was very specific and so we will talk more about that image and sexism and surfing when we come right back from a quick break so speaking to the la times a couple years ago about sexism in the surfing industry Uh, Matt Warshaw said the sport has had a long, fairly shameful history of sexism, and it's still not over. And 
a lot of it, I think, has to do with how the girl culture was quickly commodified. And it somewhat has to do with the lasting image of Gidget, who, yes, in a lot of ways could be seen as an empowering figure. But she was also a conventionally attractive, thin, blonde girl, you know, who, you know, fast forward to 2002 and she's Kate Bosworth and Blue Crush. Yeah, you've got to be cute and little and wearing a little string bikini. And that's the image, like we were saying, like that's the image that is served up to consumers of what a girl surfer is supposed to look like. Yeah, because it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna do this guy thing, you need to need to look uh sexy for us while you're doing it, you know? Yeah. My uh, eyeballs just rolled out of my head. But if we look at competitive surfing, um one big issue which has come up in pretty much every sport there has been, um there's a wage gap. Uh, so although some competitions have leveled their winnings for male and female competitions, um, Inertia magazine reported that women took home just 20 percent of the pro surfing money in 1976. And that number increased to a whopping 22 percent <laughs> in 2011. Yeah, in 2014, the World Surf League did announce prize money parity for male and female winners, but I don't, I, I think they're in the uh, minority, correct? Like, yes. it's still, it's still very unequal. Um, and a lot of the issue around making money comes down to sponsorships because these brands who sponsor surfing competitions and individual surfers want marketable Women, And that means looking like a model, being a model, looking like a Kate Bosworth, um, and also performing a very specific type of straight femininity. Um, for instance, in 1997, uh, rad lady Jodie Cooper became the first pro surfer to come out. But there are so many other surfer women who say that they have to stay in the closet or at least try to appear more feminine and straight to stay sponsored because it can cost tens and tens of thousands of dollars if you don't have a sponsor to pursue this as your whole life, your lifestyle. And who was it you were telling me about who uh, talked about guys specifically on the beach yelling homophobic slurs at her to throw her off her surfing game? Yeah, so Claire Sullivan, not Claire Sullivan, but Claire Sullivan wrote, a piece for one of these surfing websites that we were looking at. Uh, and she anonymously quoted a whole bunch of women because the whole issue is these women are at the top of their game and they don't want to be outed because they don't want to lose their sponsorships. And she talked to a woman who said, yeah, you know, it's ridiculous. I, uh, you know, I had a girlfriend at the time and guys before competitions would be screaming homophobic things at me to throw me off my game. And at this point, listeners, I like turn to Kristen as I'm reading this and I'm just going like, who cares? Not about the homophobia. <laughs> we should care about the homophobia. But who who cares about people being gay? I, you know, and, and I, I understand that my viewpoint isn't the viewpoint that everyone shares. But it's like, who cares if she's a lesbian or bisexual or whatever? I mean, is she a good surfer? But it 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 so goes back to the issue of marketability because Pro surfing is so entwined, according to Claire Sullivan and the women that she interviewed, with surfing culture's marketability. And women's events draw a smaller crowd, which means smaller funding. 
And then you have the issue of surfing media, so magazines, websites, and all of that, feeding off of ads from those sponsors who want the girls and women to look super sexy. And this just furthers the massive stigma that exists around anyone who doesn't look like a Gidget or a Kate Bosworth. If you are a gay, athletic-looking woman, you're so outside of the bounds of what the media is telling you you should look like. Well, or even a straight woman who prefers to wear a wetsuit instead of a bikini. God forbid a woman want to wear something that, like, if she hits a big wave or falls in the water, like, her bottoms don't come off with it. Yeah, I just bought... um one pieces specifically for Hawaii because I knew that I would be in uh, wavier water, for lack of a better descriptor. And yeah, bikini tops just come right off. Yeah. Which in some places in Hawaii, that's totally fine. Um, but but I wanted something that would just like stay in place. And I got to tell you, swimming in a one piece is, is kind of liberating in its own way because I don't have to worry about my boobs falling out anymore. Yeah. I pretty much only exclusively wear them now. I love I do love a one piece. We are becoming our mothers. It's fine. It makes peeing harder, but, you know, whatever. Well, I mean, that's why you just pee in the pool anyway, Caroline. Oh, I <laughs> Do not pee in the pool. I'm never going swimming to a pool with you. Swimming to a pool? I'm never swimming to a pool. I'm never swimming in a pool with you. Anyway. But moving away from my pool peeing, my alleged pool peeing. I believe you don't. You don't. Thank you, Caroline. You don't strike me as a pool peer. Well, that's why I wear my swim diapers, Ah! you know. Um, (laughs) But going back to the bikinis and surfing thing, which I'm sure there are some women who surf in bikinis and absolutely love it. But apparently, like, you know, different... Competitors like to wear different things. Shocking. Understandable. Um, but I think it was the LA Times saying that there was uh, one surfer who was sponsored, I believe, by Roxy. And she ended up parting ways with them because she was complaining that they would pressure her to wear their bikinis in competitions, um, which she said was just made it harder for her to surf. Now, of course, Roxy uh, denied that they would pressure her to do anything like that, saying, well, of course, we would want her to wear our line, but saying that it's a bikini. Now, that's, you know, a whole other thing. Um, but I, I believe the surfer, yeah. <laughs> you know, because if you look at um, a lot of surf media in the same way as you see with uh, skateboarding, a lot of times the women featured in the bigger media are very sexy, you know, very sexily portrayed. And another downside to the lasting holdover of the blonde, thin, straight, um, and bustier Gidget ideal is that it also erases the diversity within surfing, not only in terms of sexual orientation, but also, I mean, it just whitewashes the whole thing. I mean, there was even a 2011 documentary called Whitewash um, that focused on surfers' Of color, because so many black people in particular who surf um, reported in this documentary being made fun of constantly by people who are like, what are you doing here? You don't surf like I mean, and that goes back to just stereotypes, too, about um, African-American people and swimming. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's like stereotypes on stereotypes. And then if you are a woman of color who surfs, I mean forget about it. People just like it does not compute in people's brains. But it's just because of these images a lot of times yeah. that are fed, even though, again, like you said, Caroline, it's ironic because it started as such an egalitarian sport. 
And speaking of images, like so many times when we see photo spreads of female surfers, whether they're pros or amateurs, a lot of times those photo spreads aren't even showing them actually surfing. They're showing them, you know, mostly naked, you know, rolling around in the sand or in the shower or something like that. And a lot of pro women have have really taken issue with that and saying like, okay, we get that you're going to like sexualize female surfers because that's just what the media are doing. But you seriously can't even show her doing her job. Well, and some women, some surfers make their name that way. You Mm -hmm. know, I mean, they're God, just like cursory Google searches um, to get the research for this episode started. Turned up so many like X number of sexiest or hottest girls in surfing. Same way as it was uh, with skateboarding. Mm -hmm. But when I was looking up a few names over at the Encyclopedia of Surfing website, which is fantastic, uh, which you should check out, listeners, um, if you're interested in the topic. It's very comprehensive and just a visual delight. Um, But I was looking up pros, including Maya Gabera, Laura Inever, and Alana Blanchard. And (laughs) all of their Encyclopedia of Surfing entries immediately kind of describe them as like known as a really sexy surfer. You know, she's posed in Maxim or GQ or Playboy. I mean, this is um, definitely a part of the industry for for some athletes. I mean, but that to me also speaks to the bigger issue of female athletes and media and the sexualization thereof. And not getting paid as much as the guys. So maybe if you can make money posing for Playboy. Yeah. Then ellipses. But we have some good news. Yes, we do. Because if we travel to places where, like Hawaii pre-James Cook, where surfing is like a brand new thing and there are no, like, gender norms attached to that surfboard, yet again, it becomes this egalitarian and even liberating sport for young women. Yeah. One great example is the Brown Girl Surf Collective that was started by Ishida Malavia in India. She's India's first female surfer, and she learned how to surf from American yogis, but was often taunted for her tan skin while surfing. Yeah, because uh, as we talked about in our colorism episode, um, to intentionally have tanner skin would be more unheard of. Um, but Malavia loved surfing so much and found it so empowering. She didn't care and is now more of a, a surf evangelist. Um, you also have in Iran an Irish competitive surfer named Dr. Iski Britton, who essentially brought women surfing to Iran. And you might be wondering, wait, how are Iranian women surfing? Answer, surf hijabs. Yes, they exist. There are actual clothing companies that make like uh, like modest swimwear um, for Muslim women. Um, but Britain co-founded Waves of Freedom, which is a nonprofit that uses surfing to break down gender boundaries. Although workshops are open to women and men. But of course, on an Iranian beach, the men and women would be learning to surf separately. Yeah, and it's so interesting to read about um, 
this sport being introduced as a thing that girls and women do and having boys approach her and be like, well, this looks really cool. Can I do it? Because they have only seen it through that lens of it being something that women do. And one of the interviewers asked her about what the basically like the cultural police in Iran, what their response has been to it, because, you know, they crack down on you can't wear this or say this or do this, whatever. And she says that the police came down to the beach They saw that the women were training on one end, the men were training on the other, the women were fully covered, literally from head to toe, uh, full wetsuits, heads covered, even wearing a type of skirt. And they were like, well, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Just uh, proceed. (laughs) Well, in, in an interview with Broadly, Britain was saying, like, how... There were no rules, you know, so they're almost redefining the sport because no one had ever done it before. Yeah. Um, and a similar thing has happened in Bangladesh where you have Australian Rashad Alam who has moved to Bangladesh and uh, is a surfer and also a lifeguard who has taught a group of girls in southern Bangladesh to surf and really just witness the confidence that it quickly built in them, uh, similar to what we've seen and read about with uh, Skatistan, the uh, skateboarding nonprofit in Afghanistan that focuses on teaching girls how to skateboard. Um, and in 2008, Alam started Cox's Bazaar Surf Club to help, I guess, get other uh, of these girls who often like are are from very 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 poor families and would usually have to spend their days um, working to you know earn money for their family. So he it was also this process of having to talk to the parents, sort of convince them that this was something worthwhile for their daughters to do because uh, it's also in teaching them lifeguarding skills and CPR skills as well, giving these girls like newer dreams that they had never had before, like new possibilities of things that they could possibly do with their lives. Right. And I mean, just the empowerment you get from participating in athletics and sports and learning that you have this power to be able to move your body and be strong and succeed in something new and scary. I'm still saying it's scary for for me. I need to be empowered. If like 11 year old girls in Bangladesh can do it, Caroline, maybe we can. I'll right? S- I'll sit on the board and just float. There that you go. Like in a swimming pool. Sounds good. Right. But not a pool that I'm in, apparently. <laughs> as long as you're wearing your pool diaper. Now, before we close out the podcast, so we do want to highlight three wahinis, which is the Hawaiian term for lady surfer uh, that we think you should know about to kind of help bring this timeline that we've gone over to life. And also, I mean, to give these ladies their druthers. Yeah. I mean, all these names are new to me. I, yeah. I will admit, uh, including Linda Benson's, which it shouldn't be new to me because she's the champion and godmother of surfing, basically, in our modern era. Uh, she starts surfing. She's from California and she started surfing at 11. And her 15th year was a huge one for her, uh, which I'm sure mine was, too, but for probably different reasons. Um, She entered the first competition at the West Coast Surfing Championships and won. 
A few weeks later, she became the youngest surfer to win the Makaha International Surf Championships, and just a few weeks after that, she became the first woman to surf the massive 18-foot breaks at Waimea Bay. I can't imagine. Fifteen years old. Yeah. I was such a brat still, I think. I'm pretty <laughs> sure. Like, I'm pretty sure I was still just... But who knows? Maybe that would have made me a better surfer. Like, out of my way. Just GTFO. It's time for a little, Caroline. little gidget in you. I, does that, is that a good thing? Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, then yes. Sure. She had pluck, that gidget. Yeah. Um, but Benson ended up being a five-time U.S. champion and a one-time international champion. And in 1963... She was the first woman on the cover of Surf Guide magazine cover line, Linda Benson, world's greatest. Uh, but then kind of a sad turn in her story. She dropped out of surfing in 1969 because of uh, addiction. But then she returned in 1979. And, and she actually referred to surfing as artistic expression, which makes sense to me as like a complete you know, ignoramus when it comes to surfing, because, I mean, just look at what those people are doing with their boards and their bodies. It totally feels like a form of artistic expression. Um, okay, so uh, woman number two who's awesome, we've got Rel Sun. She's Hawaii's surf queen. Uh, her middle name uh, means heart of the sea. So yeah. she was fated, fated to be a surfer. She was born in 1950 in Oahu. Started surfing at the age of four, which is an adorable mental image, and at just 16 won the Hawaiian Junior Championship and was invited to the 1966 World Championships, which wasn't the 1966 World Champ Nat Young, that guy that I can't stand? Oh, wow. Full circle. Caroline just <laughs> swiveled her neck, <laughs> listeners. Um, she took a five-year break, or maybe a little over five-year break when she moved to Oklahoma. Oklahoma? Yeah. Your your middle name literally means part of the sea and you moved to Oklahoma? Well, she got married. No surprise, it did not work out because Rel's son belonged in Hawaii. So she moved back there, hit the waves, and became the world's best longboarder and what Surfing Magazine called the sport's premier stylist. Um, and one reason why Rel Sun is considered Hawaii's surf queen is because she was just so beloved for embodying Hawaii's what's called their aloha spirit in the sport. Um, and that's not just some like touristy thing. I mean, it really is um, this idea of hospitality and warmth um wearing all those airbrush t-shirts <laughs> exactly yeah. um and i was so glad caroline to run across rel sun because the sport has been so co-opted from its hawaiian roots yes yes exactly um and in 1975 she was one of the women Involved in co-founding the Women's Professional Surfing Association and the first professional women's world tour. And not only was she a supporter of other wahines, she was also a supporter of her fellow Hawaiian surfers founding a competition, uh, the Mehune Contest, which was exclusively open to Hawaiian kids. And this woman continued surfing even after being diagnosed with breast cancer in 1983, and she continued surfing right up until she passed away in 1998 at just 47 years old. So young. I know. But I want to say that she was even undergoing radiation treatment and would still hit the beach 
every day. Well, if you've got something that you feel is like healing on a soul level, I mean, why wouldn't you? Well, and we have to remember, too, that, I mean, surfing was a spiritual sport, you know, and a spiritual pastime in Hawaii. So I wonder if that had a tie-in with it as well. Yeah, I'm sure if you're not scared of water and surfing, it's very healing, she says nervously. Well, and Lisa Anderson, finally, our, our third woman we wanted to bring to your attention. Lisa Anderson is the original Roxy girl, and basically she's surfing's first female celebrity. Uh, she began surfing at 13 when her family moved to Florida, and then she ran away to Los Angeles after her father destroyed her surfboard. Yeah, I think she had a, a pretty uh, not not cool home life. Yeah, sounds like it. But she turned pro at 17, so so she was a badass, and... Her global rankings gradually grew during the late 80s, and she basically pursued her. Her effort was to pursue surfing like a guy. Yeah, those are her her words. Yeah, being tough, being aggressive on the waves and not just like you said, uh, doing what everybody assumes women do, which is just pursuing the more stylistic aspect. And it's no surprise that she was such a celebrity because from 94 to 97, which you know, the heyday of this mainstreamed surf style. She snagged four world championships and she won the first one five weeks after giving birth. My head just exploded. I don't know what giving birth is like, but I know how tough it was for me to get an IUD and I wouldn't want to surf after that. (laughs) Um, She also snagged a Surfer magazine cover. Uh, She was the first woman on there, by the way, in 15 years and the cover line was Lisa Anderson surfs better than you. And apparently that was like a a wink to the fact that like pretty much all of those subscribers were dudes. And it's like, oh, hey, guys, a girl surfs better than you. Well, in 1996, around the same time that in Marietta, Georgia, Caroline Irvin was getting all of those Roxy catalogs, uh Lisa Anderson became their face, and she really helped popularize their board shorts. And this is when you see also this is, you know, the era we talked about where corporations were super getting in on their new consumer base, women. Um, And uh, Corey Schumacher, writing for Cooler Mag, writes about how this shift that Lisa Anderson was a part of ushering in ignited a wildfire of all-girl surf schools, girl surf movies, and female surf lifestyle clothing lines across surf brands. And they also talk about how uh, the, you know, California surfer girls weren't necessarily afraid of consumerism. And I don't mean that to sound as like weird and kind of patronizing as it might sound, but that they were literally like, no, I want the gear to be able to do the sport that I want to do. And so, yeah, if you want to market to me, bring it on. (laughs) Unfortunately, back problems basically deflated Anderson's career, but Surfer Magazine still named her one of its 25 most influential surfers of the century. And also on that list, Gidget. That's right. She was number seven. And it is kind of ironic, Caroline, considering the enduring sexism of the sport and really the the industry around the sport um, is the fact that in mid-century American pop culture, it was a girl that really, you know, <laughs> brought the tidal wave of attention to surfing. And it was not it really wasn't that long after Gidget emerged in pop culture that Nat Young said girls shouldn't surf because they would make fools of themselves. That is how short our collective memories are. Yeah. 
that we can't remember a time when surfing was egalitarian and when women were right there alongside their their kings. It's because of whitewashing, yeah. just like the documentary name. I know. Well, listeners, now we're curious to hear whatever surfing insights you have. Uh, com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I have a letter here from another Kristen uh, talking about our STD episode. She says, my husband and I were over the moon to learn that we were expecting our first child a few years ago. At my first doctor appointment for the pregnancy, several tests were performed to determine my health and the health of my newly conceived baby. The next day, I got a call from the nurse who had a very shaming tone at my doctor's office and was told that I had tested positive for chlamydia. This was a major shock and sent me into a whirlwind of confusion and hurt since my husband and I were, and still are, very happily married and monogamous. The only way this could have happened is if my husband had been unfaithful. I confronted him with this and he insisted that was not true and he was just as confused and hurt as I was. After doing some research that same day, I learned that false positives for chlamydia in pregnant women are not unheard of. I became convinced that this had to be the case for myself and my husband. I called the nurse back and insisted that I be retested. She was very dismissive and condescending, but agreed to retest me. This new test came back negative. While the nurse did admit that the first test was a false positive, she didn't go so far as to apologize for the shame and judgment she threw my way. The fact that false positives for STDs in pregnant women are so common was surprising to me. I'm thankful that I trusted in my relationship and my husband. What's that phrase? Trust, but verify. Thanks so much. And thank you, Kristen. And I think that's some valuable stuff to pass along to our listeners, because not only, you know, do we want to encourage you to handle the situation when your healthcare provider is shaming you, but we also want you to know that false positives are a thing that can happen. So don't be afraid to trust and verify. (laughs) Well, I've got a letter here from Julie, subject line, Tanning in Hawaii. So, of course, had to read it this episode. Uh, Julie writes, I'm a new listener to the show and I really enjoy it. I finally got around to listening to the tanning podcast after hearing it referenced in several pieces of listener mail. Currently, I live in Honolulu, which has a very complex history and cultural identity, in particular when it comes to skin tone and tanning. I'd be remiss to try to explain that background in a shortish email. Just know that there are a lot of different cultures represented here and some lingering resentment, depending on who you ask, at not being an independent nation led by the Hawaiian monarchy. That being said, as a California-raised white chick, let me take a stab at my own observations of tanning in the Aloha State. I've never seen a tanning salon or spray tan facility here, but they probably exist. It's pretty much assumed that if you're in Hawaii, you're tanning on the beach or poolside or just getting tanned by the sheer power of the sun. I don't see being tan or not tan as a socioeconomic issue here. It's more of an outsider versus local issue. Just from my own personal experience and observations, having a tan here is a symbol of belonging. As a heole, or white chick, being tan is a way to show that I'm not some random person who just flew in from the mainland. Not being tan shows that someone isn't local. A few months back, my picture was in the newspaper and one of my friends immediately commented, you need to work on your tan. (laughs) 
It's definitely an interesting dynamic in Hawaii and very different from what I experienced growing up, tasty as can be in NorCal, so I thought I'd share. On a related side note, I work as an editor out here and a few weeks ago was at the opening of a Kiehl's in Honolulu. I met the company president for a quick interview and he shamed me for my tan. He said that my beautiful tan, hashtag humblebrag, was all sun damage that couldn't be undone. I felt properly scolded. So thank you for that insight, Julie. Um, and I will say that when I arrived in Hawaii, I uh, definitely stood out because of my blindingly white skin. <laughs> so now listeners, again, we'd love to hear from you about all of your Hawaii and or surfing insights. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about the history of surfing, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 